Well, good morning, fellowship. Welcome to worship. It is good to be gathered here with you in person and those of you joining us online, perhaps catching up um, later on in the week. It is one Lord who unites all of us and it is good to be gathered on this first day of the week. As we do gather on the first day of the week, it's common for us to look back at the week past and to even consider what the week forward is going to be like. And so our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm chapter 16. And I invite you, as you think about this past week and the coming week, to use your spiritual imagination to see where Christ has been with you and how these words might be true. Or maybe it's your hope that they're true this coming week for you. Let's hear these words from Psalm chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Would you stand and let's sing together.
summer. We hope that as you came in this morning that you grabbed one of these or were given one of these little gratitude cards. Uh, a theme throughout the service this morning will be gratitude. And uh, later on in the service, you'll be invited, if you so choose, uh, to share that gratitude card uh, in, in the front when you come up for communion with something that you're grateful for. To put ourselves in a posture of gratitude, we will uh, pray a prayer of gratitude that was ultimately a gift uh, to us uh, from Walter Brueggemann, who is a famous Old Testament theologian. So let's pray together. Oh God, the witnesses tell of your boundless generosity, and their telling is compelling to us. You give your word to call the worlds into being. You give your sovereign rule to emancipate the slaves and the oppressed. You give your commanding fidelity to form your own people. You give your life for the life of the world, broken bread that feeds, poured out wine that binds and heals. You give we receive, and we are thankful. We begin this day in gratitude. Thanks that in, it is a match of your self-giving. Gratitude in the gift it offered. Gratitude in tales that have been told. Gratitude in lives lived. Gratitude willed, but not so readily lived. Held back by old wounds turned to powerful resentment, slowed by early fears that have become vague anxiety, restrained by self-sufficiency in a can-do arrogance, blocked by amnesia, unable to recall gifts any longer. Do this yet, create innocent spaces for us this day, for the gratitude we intend for in thankfulness we will give, in thankfulness we will tell, in thankfulness we will live your gift through us, a gift to this world. In Christ's name, amen. May the peace of Christ be with you. Please share a sign of Christ's peace with one another as you are able and willing. Peace be with you, Buzz. Good morning, Fellowship Church. Morning. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you're new or visiting with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, you can fill out a connection cards with, for us or with us uh, if you'd like to make yourself known to us. 
We'd like to invite you and everyone, for that matter, uh, uh, to a lunch this afternoon. If you want to take kind of that next step in getting to know some people, we are going to have a really fun table-to-table luncheon uh, right outside. And on your way to the second table, uh, the lunch table, there is a number of items. Uh, We are not becoming Myers Thrifty Acres, no. Uh, But these are all items that you can... uh, how would you even say it? You bid, I guess, uh, sort of thing. Uh, and you might get drawn uh, to win that if you put uh, a ticket in. Uh, and it's a way not to, to play a game necessarily. It is kind of gamey. Um, but the point is to raise some funds uh, for our high school and middle school students who will be going on trips uh, this summer. And we'd love to support them. Uh, and this is just a fun way of doing it. Uh, we'd love to have you join us for that. The atrium, that area where all that stuff is, last week was filled with food items. I wasn't here, but apparently y'all packed 800 snack packs that will be given out to West Ottawa students in the coming weeks. So thanks be to God uh, for that act of mercy that you participated in last week. Uh, This week's act of mercy, as we are marching our way through Lent, uh, is giving water to the thirsty. And so we have a little demonstration right outside that middle door uh, from Aquora, which is a local organization right here at Hope College uh, that filters water. And you can see uh, and be mindful of the fact that numerous people in our world uh, don't have access to something that we take so, so, so for granted in clean water. So that would be a a way to practice mercy is to learn a little bit about that and or give a little bit extra uh, to some of the organizations like Aquora or uh, our very own denomination who helps um, people around the world uh, get access to clean drinking water. This Thursday, uh, this sanctuary space is going to also be transformed like the atrium was into a, a whatever that is, an auction out there today. This, the, the sanctuary will be transformed into an auditorium of sorts uh, on Thursday as our mission partner, Boys and Girls Club, will be hosting their annual Youth of the Year Award. I have gone the last couple times, and it is an awesome event. Uh, And we were like, why don't we tell the fellowship family about this? Uh, So we just want to make you aware you're not uh, expected to come by any stretch of imagination, but it's a really cool way uh, to honor and celebrate uh, kids in our community uh, who have kind of stood out maybe uh, through the Boys and Girls Club program. Well, this uh, last announcement is kind of a, 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 a heavy one, um, but this past week, one of our longest, uh, our, our longest uh, tenured uh, staff member and, and a beloved one at that, Karen Donker, uh, sent out a note uh, to the, her, all of her volunteers uh, and all the people that she knows best at Fellowship Church uh, that she's going to be retiring at the end of this school year. And so if you are hearing of this, you're probably feeling a little bit like I am, very bittersweet, sweet like thanks be to God for Karen and that she uh, can retire and that she can spend more time with her family but kind of like oh we love Karen and we're gonna miss her how are we gonna go on without Karen Donker at Fellowship Church Uh, but she has uh, so graciously uh, given us a bit bit of a heads up uh, and and letting us know that this is gonna happen at the end of the summer and we're gonna have plenty of opportunity um, over the next couple months to, to say thanks be to God Uh, for Karen, but this is a big week as she's uh, letting some folks know and letting you all know, and that's uh, uh, heavy. There's a heaviness that is associated with that, Um, but we also can say thanks be to God (laughs) for uh, Karen's uh, work among us and to acknowledge uh, kind of the heaviness of that. Would you guys uh, give a little little thanks be to God clap for uh, Karen Donker? She has been and continue and will be an enormous gift uh, to the staff at Fellowship and ultimately to the West Ottawa community uh, for her engagement and the ways in which she connects us with our schools, and we're so grateful for that. My friends, gratitude is uh, the basis of all of our generous acts of love. Like Karen lived, uh, like we can practice uh, in the giving of our tithes and offerings with the offering plates or bowls at the back of the sanctuary and the online giving Uh, but also using uh, the gifts that God has given us uh, for the sake of the community and for the sake of the world. One thing that we like to celebrate at Fellowship Church is the gifts of art that folks have have been given. Uh, And so throughout Lent, we're going to have a gallery with our own people's art uh, helping us prepare uh, for Holy Week and Easter season. And this morning, uh, Abby Garcia's uh, art is uh, displayed out there for the first time. And we made a little video that helps you understand and get to know Abby and her art. 
I'm Abby Garcia, and for my painting, I use The Last Supper mural by Da Vinci as an inspiration. I made it my own interpretation by using symbolism. Judas is the black silhouette because he is the one who betrays Jesus, and the disciples are the gray silhouettes. Jesus is the white figure in the center, representing the holy event that was about to happen to take place. Huge thank you to Abby Garcia for contributing to our Passion That Teaches gallery out there. Yes, thank you for doing that. An eighth grader, how cool. Uh, kids, up to age fifth grade, you are able to scoot out to your various places right now if you'd like to do that. And as they wait, make their way out, I'd like to engage with the rest of you all a bit of an anticipatory set, a little game called First or Last. Okay, so I'll name a situation and you say out loud and point to the side of your preference, whether you'd rather be first or last, okay? So when waiting in line, would you rather be first or last? Very good. When meeting a friend for coffee, would you rather arrive first or last? Oh, that's a little mixed. Okay. When it comes to rank on the pay scale, would you rather be first or last? First, yes. Okay. About your team in March Madness, would you rather that they be first or last? <laughs> Duh, right? On social media, in regard to receiving likes for something you post, would you rather be first or last? Oh, now you're mumbling. <laughs> At table to table today, would you rather get your food first or last? Oh, yeah, okay. Honest. Good. When it comes time for someone to sacrifice something, would you rather be first or last? Yeah. There's honesty. Come on. And when it's time to stand lovingly with Jesus somewhere, would you rather be first or last? Very good. Thank you. Hey, we're in a series, as you know, uh, exploring Jesus, the teacher, and especially his passion that teaches. We've been studying Matthew's gospel since Christmas, and we'll do so all the way up until Easter. And we're finding in this great book of Matthew stories of Jesus teaching with five major teaching blocks that we're moving through as we go. Today, we are actually at the star, which is in between those last two major teaching blocks. And yet, guess what? In chapters 18 to 23, Jesus is still teaching. And we're going to lean into some of those ideas for today. It has a bit to do with being first or last, actually. And in preparing for this message this morning, I found myself torn. I found myself forced to choose between either crafting a message that was about one parable only or doing more of a broad sweep of several interrelated texts. And I've opted to do the second thing, for better or for worse. I want to draw out a few of these interrelated texts this morning. And uh, the theme that I couldn't help but notice as I've looked at Matthew chapter 18 through 23 was, was a, a theme that moves us from meritocracy to generosity. Doesn't that just bless you? <laughs> from meritocracy to generosity. Meritocracy, is a little help, is a system based on merit. You get what you deserve, you earn it, you achieve it like a merit badge. And these stories are going to move us from meritocracy to generosity. I want to pull out a few of those texts for us this morning and read them with you. And this will be the word of the Lord for us this morning from the book that we love. So in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus' disciples come to him and ask, Who is the greatest? And Jesus pulls a child nearby him and says, whoever takes the lowly position of this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, after interacting with a rich young ruler and then also ambitious young Peter, Jesus offers this line. Both of those two are firsts in the world in their various categories. Jesus says to them, many who are firsts will be last and many of the lasts will be first. 
Then in Matthew chapter 20, after telling a parable about a landowner and some day laborers, Jesus says the same thing again in, in inverted order. He says, now the lasts will be first and the first will be last. Then in Matthew chapter 20, at the end of that particular chapter, the disciples are again disputing. They're trying to g- gain the pr- a position of prominence in the kingdom. And Jesus says to them, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then in chapter 23, again, now Jesus is speaking to a broad crowd, to a group of Pharisees, and to his own disciples. And here again, he says that all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, I hope that you'll zoom through a few of those scenes together with me as we notice this shift from meritocracy to generosity. The first scene that I'm drawing attention to, I call Meritocracy 1.0. It's the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks a question. He says, what good deed must I do to gain, to get, to have eternal life? And Jesus answers by playing by the man's own rules at first. He says, everything and perfectly. Now, to be fair to the rich young ruler, there was no such thing at this time yet as reformed Christianity. This point in the story is one in which Jesus' passion has not yet taken him to the cross and through the empty tomb for us and for our salvation. At this point in the story, the apostle Paul has not yet penned the famous passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 that says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. That stuff's not out there yet. And so the rich young ruler is simply naming what most people in most cultures are often thinking a meritocracy where you get what you deserve. And if you want something, you better earn it. There's a popular show on Netflix. Maybe it's not popular, but it's caught my attention. Uh, Maybe it's caught yours. It's called The Physical 100. Anybody seen this one out there at all? No? Okay. It's a game show that is literally the survival of the fittest. These people are all super fit, and the game unfolds in a way that the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the fittest are the only ones who survive. The rest are eliminated. Our culture actually seems to operate by this very same principle almost everywhere, doesn't it? Everything is a meritocracy in our world. When you go to school, it's a meritocracy. Good efforts make for good grades. When you apply for a job, it's a meritocracy. The best applicant wins. In sports, it's a meritocracy, especially March Madness tournaments, right? You survive and advance, or you don't. And in American society, we know this all too well. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, right? It's a meritocracy. And so, when you go to church, in your life with God, is that also a meritocracy? In this interaction with the rich young ruler, Jesus begins to upend his meritocracy by asking him why he thinks that goodness exists anywhere other than in God alone. Most commentators look at this exchange that unfolds up there and notice that Jesus' response about God's goodness is a reference to the first four of the Ten Commandments. Remember those? They're all about God. They say that you shall have no other God. You shall have no idols. You shall honor God's name, and you shall keep God's day holy. Remember the Sabbath day. It's about God's goodness first. But in this interaction with the rich young ruler, Jesus notices that the man is interested in doing. He wants to know what he can do in order to earn eternal life. And so Jesus then mentions the next five of the 10 commandments, the most visible ones. He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents and 
love your neighbor as you love yourself, which is Jesus' summary of those statements. And the rich young ruler says back to Jesus, all of these I have kept since my youth. What else can I do? And then Jesus looks at him, the text tells us. Mark's gospel says that he looked at him and loved him, which is a beautiful detail. And then he names the one commandment that has not yet been mentioned, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And so Jesus says, go and sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. It's as if in this instance, Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, if we must play this game of meritocracy, let's play it until it breaks you. Maybe then you'll give up the game altogether. The man walks away sad because he finds out that he's actually not able to win at this game of meritocracy. He's climbed the ladder almost all the way to the top, and then he realizes that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. It's based on his own hope and trust in his ability to achieve and acquire. Jesus graciously interacts with him so as to demonstrate one of the fundamental truths of the gospel. The prerequisite to receiving the gospel is knowing that you need it. And so he's helping the man in that particular direction. You can't earn it. And so in this scene, the first scene, Jesus is helping to shift the scorecard from meritocracy to generosity. He plays the rich young ruler's game out to the point of its own failing. And then Jesus offers to him the exact same gracious invitation that he extends to everyone else who knows that you cannot do it on your own. He says, come follow me, which is different than earning. Scene two, I call meritocracy 2.0. The story continues, and immediately afterwards, the disciples who have been listening in to this interaction with a rich young ruler now ask a question. They're surprised. They say, well, Jesus, who then can be saved? And Jesus responds by saying, for mortals, it's impossible. But for God, all things are possible. And the most surprising detail in this particular section of the story in this scene is Jesus teaching about how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. To make the point, Jesus uses an illustration of a camel, the largest known animal, and the eye of a needle, the smallest known opening at the time. The statement shocks the disciples, and they're basically responding by saying, well, that's impossible. Ever since I was a little kid and I heard this story, I've always thought, well, you could maybe just put the camel in a blender. And it's like a Blendtec 5000, right? And, just, and then you could just pour it through ever so carefully. But you know, Notice what's happening in my head as I'm thinking about it in that way. I'm trying to come up with another way where we can still do it if we simply just try harder and get creative enough. But the whole point that Jesus is making by making this particular statement about the camel and the eye of the needle is that you can't just try harder. It's impossible. You can't do it. How many of you have heard of the camel's gait? Some of you, many of you have. That doesn't surprise me at all. Unfortunately, there is no such thing as a camel's gait. It, it, it doesn't exist. But it is among the most popular interpretations of this hard saying of Jesus. If you haven't heard of it, the suggestion is that in the ancient Middle East, entering Jerusalem, there was a camel's gait nicknamed the needle's eye. And a big camel with all of its luggage could actually get through if it took all the luggage off, knelt down, and squeezed its way through. It, it's another example of trying to say, you can do it if you just have the right technique. I checked 10 different commentaries, and I found that illustration in all of them. And all of them named it as false. How interesting, right? That perhaps even more interesting than that particular in interpretation is the fact that it has remained so popular for so long, even if it's been known to be false all along. Apparently, we humans are so addicted to the idea of meritocracy that we'll make stuff up in order to keep the game in play. 
Why does it matter? Consider this. What's the biggest difference between trusting human meritocracy or God's generosity? I think the biggest difference is who you thank. If I put my trust in my merit, my ability to achieve and earn, then at the end of the day, thanks be to me, good job self, right? But if I put my trust in God's generosity, then in all things, finally, thanks be to God. It's a big difference. Few people are more aware of our inability to win at this meritocracy game with God than a guy named Brennan Manning, written a few different books. Here's how he says it. I like this. He says, the gospel of grace nullifies the two-class citizenship theory operative in many American churches. For grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. While there is much that we may have earned, our degree, our salary, our home and garden, a Miller Lite, a good night's sleep, all of this is possible only because we have been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see and hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas and a heart to beat with love. My deepest awareness, he says, and the one thing that matters most in all of life is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. And so it happens. Again, like in scene one, the needle is moving from meritocracy to generosity. And in one powerful sentence, Jesus simply says that the thing that is impossible for human beings, God can do. God is able to do the impossible on our behalf. Everything perfectly in Jesus' name for you and for me. Which brings us to the next scene. Again, now we're at meritocracy 3.0. The most rambunctious of the disciples, as we've joked before, his name is Peter. I like to picture Pastor Nate right over here as just a good parallel. We have our own edition. He offers a fun or an interesting rebuttal. Hearing all of this, Peter turns to Jesus and says, but Jesus, we have given everything. What will be our reward? And Jesus answers him back graciously, fear not, you will not be shortchanged. In other words, Peter is basically saying to Jesus, if it's not a meritocracy, then is it worth it to give everything? And Jesus answers, you can see it up there. He says, he speaks of giving great positions of honor. He speaks of being repaid a hundredfold times over, he says that there will be eternal life to boot alongside of it. Sounds like a pretty good gig, actually. One of the first arguments that I ever got in with a boss, uh, this is not a great choice. It was more of a spirited dis dispute. It was respectful all the way through. But this first argument with a boss was about whether ambition is ever godly. I was an intern at the time, some 20 years ago. The boss was a senior pastor. We were reading together a chapter on spiritual ambition. I suggested that ambition is dangerous and it's not good for us. He responded by saying, nah, it's more of a neutral thing. It can be used for good or for ill, which is a more classic position. It was a rich conversation. I still remember it. 20 years later. But to my delight, as I'm preparing for this sermon this week, in my favorite commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, I found an entire section about ambition. And the title of the section was, Is It Good to Want to Be Great? How interesting. And in the section, he goes forward and he unpacks the history of Christian thought on this very subject. He moves from Augustine to Van Rad to a modern superbrain named Ulrich Luz. I don't expect you to know that name, but it's cool, L-U-Z. He says in that survey that most people take a middle position, kind of like my senior pastor did some, some years ago. But then he also acknowledges that this is the second edition, that he has shifted his perspective from the first position 
in the first edition to a different perspective, aligning himself with the super brain Ulrich Luz and recognizing that maybe, just maybe, it's a little worse than we think. That ambition isn't always good. They recognize together that seems to be consistently that Jesus does not give a thumbs up to our efforts to advance ourselves above others, which is the first fundamental definition of ambition up there. It's still a minority opinion, but I think it's worth paying attention to, and we ought to be careful with our ambition. If you search the scriptures for the word ambition, you're going to find, depending on the translation, eight different occurrences of it. And six of those eight are on the naughty list. It's modified by a word selfish, as in selfish ambition, and it's not commended. The only two positive instances are first the apostle Paul saying, I have made it my ambition to preach the gospel, which is a little different use of the term ambition. And the other one is in 1 Thessalonians, where we Christians are encouraged to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life, which is kind of like ambition to not be ambitious, really. No wonder in this interaction with Peter that we have here today, when Peter is starting to have a desire for recognition and for reward, in that instance, Jesus offers the first great reversal. He says, many of the firsts, which would be the rich young ruler and Peter among the disciples, many of the firsts will be last and many of the lasts will be first. It's another gentle reminder of the shift from meritocracy to generosity. Now, to be sure, it's a comforting word. If you've ever given greatly and made great sacrifices with a pure heart for the sake of God, for the sake of the gospel, the text clearly tells us that God sees, God knows, but also that God rewards beyond merit, a hundredfold, an eternal life to boot beyond merit. And right behind it comes a subtle warning too. Don't make it about being first. Don't do it in order to be first, in order to get the honor, expecting to be first. Which brings us to the last of the scenes for our morning, meritocracy 4.0, which is the parable that Jesus tells, a parable of a landowner and some day laborers. You've probably heard this parable before. In it is an implicit question. The question is, if meritocracy isn't the rule, then is the game still fair? Maybe you've wondered that as well. Jesus answers, basically, it's better than fair as long as your eye isn't green with envy. Let me review the parables. Ring a bell here. A landowner hires some day laborers. He hires some first thing in the morning. Then he does it again and again and again, multiple times throughout the day, so that finally some are hired at 5 p.m. And they barely work before the day is over. But then he begins to pay them in an odd order. He pays the last ones first, and he gives them a full day's pay. And when the earliest ones see this, they begin to think, oh, goody, we're going to get paid extra, aren't we? And they come forward, and they too are similarly paid a full day's pay, just as they had agreed, perfectly fair. But they begin to grumble, and they, the landowner says to them, why are you fussing? You've been paid fairly. And it ends with a zinger of a question where the landowner says, are you envious because I am generous? <laughs> the problem in the story is not that anyone gets shortchanged of what they're due. The problem in the story is that some think it's not fair. In the English language, we call this being green with envy, right? It's the opposite of contentment. And I'll admit, I'm plenty familiar with envy. Maybe you are as well. Every year at spring break, we try to get down to Florida to a beloved place we often go. Nearby, there's a place called St. Armand's Circle. And this place is a car lover's dream. I'm a car lover. And in that place, it's not uncommon to see many of the exotics, Porsche, McLaren, even Bugatti we've seen down there. 
Throughout the years, I've had a fantasy, this is true confessions, I've had a fantasy that someone driving one of these fancy cars would see me and then feel generous and toss me the keys <laughs> and the title. Uh, <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Which is a strange fantasy because we have more than plenty. We don't need more. And yet, it's hard to see other people who have more, isn't it? Envy is one of the first fruits of a worldview of scarcity. Perhaps you've heard scarcity before. Scarcity basically says there's not enough, so you better hurry up and get your own before it's gone. Meritocracy fuels this idea of scarcity because, of course, only one person can get the job. Only one team can win the tournament and so forth. Maybe it needs to be that way in our world. But certainly, at least according to my experience, scarcity out here generates scarcity in here. And once one person starts to get grabby, everybody starts to get grabby and crabby, right? Remember trying to get toilet paper at the beginning of COVID? Yeah, scarcity begets scarcity. And the fruit of such a worldview is jealousy and envy and even anger at generosity to someone else other than me, right? The classic interpretation of this parable is actually right along those very lines. It's about the last people in to God's kingdom, like the thief on the cross who lived his own way until the very last minute and turns to Jesus. Or like the Gentiles who got into the church the easier way. Or even like prodigals today who have a deathbed conversion kind of thing. The mentality of scarcity says, no, not to them. They haven't earned it. But Jesus is telling the parable because God's kingdom is a kingdom of abundance. And that's radically different. And abundance begets abundance. The things of God are not like toilet paper. They will not run out. When it comes to God's love, to God's forgiveness, to God's ability to be generous to whomever God wants to be generous to, the supply chain will not break. And the point of this parable, like the ones before, is to help us shift from meritocracy to generosity. First, God says, relax. I am reliably just. No one will get shortchanged. And then rejoice, for God is happy to be generous, happy to be generous to us and to others. After all, the great Christian hope that we have is not finally that everybody gets what they deserve. The great Christian hope is better than that. It's that God will be even more generous than we ever dare to dream to us and to others. I mean, God already has been that kind of generous to us. And the most proper response to that is, of course, thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, in our response this morning and as we prepare to come to the table, if you haven't yet gotten one of these purple cards, you can raise your hand and someone will get one to you. Um, this next song is just an opportunity to either sing along, to listen, let the words and the music wash over you as you consider what are you grateful for? Um, how has God been good to you to approach the table with thanksgiving? See you. 
as we take communion, you'll be invited to bring those cards forward as you come to the table. And we come to this table to celebrate God's goodness, God's abundance, not based on what we deserve or what we've earned or our merits or meritocracy, but because of what Christ has done for each and every one of us. And so we come in gratitude, grateful for the gift of love and grace that we know in Jesus Christ. Before we partake, let us pray together with the words on the screen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It is right for us to give thanks. Holy and right it is in our joyful duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places. O Lord, our creator, almighty and everlasting God. You created heaven with all its hosts and the earth with all of its plenty. You have given us life and being and preserve us by your providence. But you have shown the fullness of your love in sending into this world your son, Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh for us and for our salvation. For the precious gift of this mighty savior who has reconciled us to you, we praise and bless you, O God. And so with your whole church on earth and with all the company of heaven, we worship and adore your glorious name. Holy, holy, holy Lord. Holy, holy, holy Lord. God of power and might. Power and might. Heaven and earth are full. Heaven and earth are full. Are full of your glory. Are full of your glory. Continue in prayer. Most righteous God, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices. So send your Holy Spirit on us, we pray, that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith and may grow up into all things into Christ who is our head. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf and these grapes from many hills into one cup, grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So on the same night that he was to be betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. In the same manner, he took the cup called the cup of redemption. He said that this cup is a cup of a new testament in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. bread which we break and the cup which we bless are to us the communion of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This morning we will be serving a communion by intinction, which means you will come forward uh, and receive the elements and then return back to your seats. There's a diagram up on the screen to show you how, but exit left, return right. Is that right? Um, and if you would like to stay in your seat, you can just raise your hand and there will be rovers in the back that would be happy to serve you. Uh, if you prefer a gluten-free option, there's one under the cross. We'd encourage you to bring your cards of gratitude forward as you uh, are coming forward uh, and drop them in one of the baskets right up at the front. Friends, we welcome to this table all who love God and who are learning to follow Jesus. So come, for all things are now ready.
Sing all the goodness. 
It may be a meritocracy everywhere else, but in God's kingdom, it is a place of abundant generosity. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Friends, we're going to end by singing the doxology together. <laughs>